welcome everyone to Pop Culture Theologians, our first podcast. Um, just to start it out, I want to be very clear that although Marcy and I have advanced degrees, we have no idea about what we are doing. <laughs> no, we have no idea what we're doing. No idea. But we will figure it out as you come along on this adventure with us. And we are so excited that you're here um, at our first season of the Pop Culture Theologians podcast. You might be asking, what is a pop culture theologian? And to put it very simply, it is anyone who finds pop culture to almost be a religious practice. <laughs> 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 to to finding a uh, theology in Buffy, to wondering really what they are up to in any part of Westworld, of which we recapped for the written word over on the engaged gaze, but to now our favorite topic, which is of course going to be for the first season, the purge. The purge. John, I'm a huge horror addict. Are you, or was this kind of a new thing for you? It's kind of a new thing for me because I talk a lot during movies, horror movies, and I oftentimes get shushed because that's the only way I can deal with my internal terror that I see going on on the screen in front of me. No, for sure. Um, but how, I mean, how did you, I know, so for people listening, I kind of, I kind of set John up to listen and watch the four, sorry, to watch all four of the Purge movies back to back to back, which is such a different experience than how I've watched them, which is, you know, one, wait a year, two. John, what was it like to watch all four back to back? My therapist that I started going to see as a result of seeing all four back to back um, says that I'm going to deal with some psychotic disorder for probably the rest of my life because I had to watch all of them right away. <laughs> So maybe before we jump into the movies, um, do you want to maybe go through like how we met and why we decided to do this? Yes. And then who how did we meet Marcy? I don't remember. <laughs> we met at our open house for grad school at Claremont Graduate. Um, so what up to Claremont CGU? Um, we met our first day in our master's program. Yeah. So that's a long, right. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Somewhere As, called the Inland Empire. Yeah, which, uh, Google it, it's its own horror story. Um, John, why don't you tell us who you are, what you are, what you do. Tell us about yourself. So, my name is John. I am, of course, a pop culture addict, and I find myself watching more television, movies, reading the latest comic book than I probably do finishing my dissertation. So like Marcy, I am a long struggling dissertation candidate, PhD candidate graduating next year finally. But um, my day job is, as I work in making sure women have access to safe and affordable health care and additionally making sure abortion rights are there for all. So I'm a little busy right now. Um, <laughs> when you think about it. But what I do is I always am making sure that I'm on the activist side and the policy side. So um, I live here in West Hollywood, California, where um, the former home of Marcy, right up the street from where she used to live and she'll be moving back. And, and why pop theology? Because if I don't go to church because 
I was raised Catholic, but I definitely go to church every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday with all of my favorite shows. And that's honestly, I think, where I found the most religious solace growing up as a gay kid in Wisconsin was with television and pop culture. You were a huge Buffy fan, right? Like, probably to the point, and maybe one day we'll tell the listeners my freak out story about one Christmas morning but that's a little teaser all, all you'll get but I was a huge Buffy fan I think Buffy especially then getting into like academia and finding out that there are other Buffy scholars out there was like incredible to me that you could make a career out of this and I think that's really what led me into the academy and wanting to write about pop culture is that you know when you think about it, it there's so much more there than actually just you know the characters on television there's so much written into those shows each episode every season right so i'm gonna kind of give everyone a little intro into me who are you marcy i am martha cecilia ovidia also known as marcy uh i'm a colombian american uh very proud of my roots in managing colombia what's up um i too am a struggling phd candidate um I'm like, I feel like John and I are those cartoons that you see on Facebook of like the millennials who are like struggling under books and pressure and stuff. So uh, why are we doing a podcast? Because we're not doing our dissertations. <laughs> um, I hope our dissertation advisors aren't listening to this, but if they subscribe, right. thanks for subscribing. So hey, Una. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, Patrick. Uh, I too plan on graduating with John in the spring, which is ironic since I need to get to writing and not to speaking. Um, like John said, we lived in West Hollywood, uh, very close to each other. We were roommates uh, in our master's program. I'm actually originally from California. I'm a Valley girl through and through, which is why you hear that vocal fry that is not going to go anywhere. Um, <laughs> just is what it is. Hashtag Kardashians. Um, I'm living in Miami right now, so I'm in the deep south. And for those of you who are like, what? Miami is not the deep south. Like, yes, it is. Yes, it is. We have Latino Republicans everywhere. And uh, we have, it's just, it's a nightmare down here. But I love it, too. It's kind of like that crazy relationship with your, um, this is my second hometown. I grew up in L.A., but I have lived half of my life out in Florida, so... And then the reason I consider myself a pop culture theologian is because that's what I do. I wrote my master's thesis on the theology of Harry Potter, which I'm hoping we will get to discuss as pop culture theologians. And then I'm writing my dissertation on feminist anxiety in The Handmaid's Tale. So I have purposely, since leaving organized religion, I also grew up um, extremely Catholic. Um, I've kind of thrown my like life lens into the ways in which I live my life through the stories that I feel close to. And they usually tend to be the stories that we are all paying attention to. So everything from Mad Men to The Handmaid's Tale to The Leftovers, huge shout out for The Leftovers, which was what inspired me to actually want to do this. So that's who I am. Marcy, you're yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> I think you're cool too, John. <laughs> And I would just like to say, and how we met, I'm the last man to live with Marcy before she got married. You're the last man I slept with before I, I got married. Um, it was and an to clarify, slept with, meaning she was kept awake all night because of my snoring. It is like, I've never seen my Pomeranian so scared. She was in her own episode of The Perch. 
like. Uh, but actually, <laughs> funny story that ties us all together. John, like I said, John and I were roommates, and one night we watched a really scary film, which I can't remember, and I was so scared. I said, hey, can I sleep in your room? I'm super scared. And halfway through the night, I had to decide between sleeping by myself terrified or sleeping next to John losing my hearing. And I just decided it was better to die in my room alone. So, <laughs> but I love you, John. You are- True, true friendship. True friendship. So, okay. Why true the purge? Friendship. Why are we going to break down the purge? I, my husband Brent and I are huge horror fans, right? And um, we're the type of horror fans that watch everything from like B gore films, um, like Green Inferno, uh, which I'm not ashamed to say I really loved, um, all the way up to like prestige, like horror. So when I saw the first Purge, I didn't really know what to expect, but the reviews weren't really anything to write home about. And we went and saw it and I became obsessed. So like the first Purge film hit right at the height of the Hunger Games being super popular um, with the whole kind of US. I was about to say with young adults, but let's be real, like it's a, it's a much broader audience. And that first Purge, I was like, I think they're talking about stuff that's much more important than, the, than we're really kind of giving it credit for. And as the kind of the years have passed, uh, the stories and that they are telling have become more and more important. And so when John and I were talking about doing a podcast, I was like, hey, like The Purge is going to start a TV like special 10 episode kind of thing. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it today. Because I it's think it's kind of like watching the news almost a these little days. Bit. I mean, I think it's kind of like watching The Handmaid's Tale where you're like, oh, this hits too close to home. Uh, we haven't even watched the first episode of Purge TV and I'm already a little anxious because all of it just hits so close to home. Mm -hmm. The Handmaid's Tale having just finished the second season right. and a big WTF, all I can say is that when people ask me if they should watch it, I of course tell them yes because it is an incredibly well-written show. It's beautifully cast. The, the stage design is out of this world. But like, let's be real here. It is literally like turning on CNN these days. Right. And I feel like I had become like a movie evangelist for the Purge series when we were talking about like mass incarceration, gun reform, uh, white supremacy. Like, I, I feel like I kept telling people like, hey, this is going to sound super weird, but watch the Purge series. And everyone looks at me like, what? What? And I'm like, no, seriously, like watch the Purge series. They've been dissecting a lot of this kind of cultural anxiety in ways that are actually palpable, which then people are like, what, like cutting people up? And I'm like, no, it's not really that type of horror. Um, so like John, when we- I first did appreciate that. Right, when we first started talking, you were like, there's a lot of policy deconstruction in here. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, like when you look at like the first Purge movie, and don't worry listeners, we're literally gonna get there. But when you look at the policy and activism present from the first film and all the way into the last one that we have, you look at the ways in which they've totally changed our new dear founding fathers, um, who we will tell you more about later if you haven't seen it. Um, but, you know, when you look at the types of policies that have implemented to keep not only the economy going, but crime down, crime is at like, what, 1% Marcy? Or po I, cannot, I can't remember what it is because of the purge, because you could go out there on a night and kill whoever you want and all crime is legal. But then on the flip side, 
when you're introduced to this world, it's already well established, the purge. It's been going on for several years. It's totally changed the country from the economic collapse, which is another thing we'll talk about because you look at the ways in which that really rang true with a lot of Americans because of how they were hit so hard in 2008 and 2009 with the you know, with the basically collapse of the American economy. And so and these films coming out. 19 with the um, ramifications mm. of the tax cuts, right? Like we're about to yeah. make step into some crazy territory. So totally. before, before we dive into kind of dissecting all four films, um, let's break down for listeners what we plan on doing with this specific introduction podcast to the Purge world. And then what we want to do for the Purge episodes. Um, so, the pop culture theologians are hoping to do approximately like a weekly episode, a couple days after each episode that airs, breaking down the episode. So we will be hopefully going kind of not scene by scene, like detail by detail, but covering the entire episode, the themes that we see come up and how they relate to us as viewers in 2018. Um, expect to a certain extent us diving into some of the threads that they're pulling from culture, from policy from literature uh we're hoping to kind of do a full like debrief on each episode uh so we'll do some episode breakdowns and some analysis john what else are we planning on doing we are going to be doing of course some predictions because if we have no idea where they're going what good are we going to be to you so we also want to make sure that we sit there and think about where they're going with the characters what's the storyline going it's only a 10 episode event so we want to chart out some territory so we can figure out what the hell is going on in this world of the purge Right. And the reason we're doing it through this pop theology lens, like John said, is this is our religion. As like ex-religious, ex-evangelical, ex-Catholic, for a lot of us, the places where we find like deep connection to shared themes, to a grand narrative, to cultural anxiety is in shows like this, right? Um, so we're hoping to kind of be like, maybe what you listen to on a Sunday instead of a homily. Or if you're going to, to church to listen to a homily, maybe listen to us afterward. Um, I mean, John and I actually are religion scholars. Uh, my, both my master's and my PhD are religion. Uh, John, yours are as well, right? Yeah, I have one master's in women's studies and religion, but then my other degree is in applied women's studies. So very much when you look at these themes, how do you apply them? Obviously, we're not going out there into the streets and killing people, but we are going to critically break this down. Right. Like this is a safe place for anyone with any beliefs, but, um, but we feel really strongly that we can find ways to have conversations about very difficult things and very beautiful things through this pop culture lens. So without postponing it any longer, John, let's break down the first Purge movie. The, the first Purge. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual Purge sanctioned by the U.S. government. Weapons of class four and lower have been authorized for use during the Purge. All other weapons are restricted. Government officials of ranking 10 have been granted immunity from the purge and shall not be harmed. Commencing at the siren, any and all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 continuous hours. Police, fire, and emergency medical services will be unavailable until tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. when the purge concludes. Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. 
May God be with you all. So The Purge is a 2013 American dystopian horror film, and it was written and directed by James DeMonaco. And the film stars Ethan Hawke, who knew, Lena Headley, or as we call her, Cersei, or what's your nickname for her, Marcy? I can't say that out loud. My, okay, but well, we call her the queen because she's our favorite character in Game of Thrones. Um, Adelaide Cade and Max Burkholder, and they are members of a family who we meet right away who find themselves endangered by a gang of murderers during the annual purge, a night in which all cream, crime, not cream, sorry, even murder is temporarily legal. Cue suspenseful music. Um, so The Purge was, as Marcy said earlier, a real sleeper hit. It only cost $3 million to make, and it made $89 million. So what that means um, in Hollywood land is that you're about to probably get six to seven more films. Right, especially in the horror genre where, like, $30 million is, like, a hit. Like, that's, like, a solid horror film. Unless you're Hereditary, which is kicking ass right now. I have yet to see that based on my same claim that I had told Marcy before that I probably have to see it like surrounded by 13 people and like in the, in the daylight because I can, I will be terrified of it. (laughs) So give us like a really brief overview of what this first film does. So this is the first installment. Um, and so it's 2014 and the new founding fathers of America, a totalitarian political party, are voted into office following this economic collapse that basically took out the country. And they pass a law that sanctions the first purge, um, which means for 12 hours each year, all crime is legal except against government officials. And all emergency services are unavailable. So by 2022, what the movie says is that they are the United States is literally crime free and unemployment has dropped to single digits and we meet um, the Sandin family and they are returning to their really affluent home in a gated community to wait out the night and what happens is is the purge starts very ritualistically they watch it commence on television there are purge cameras that you can watch as well and James is the owner of a security system that he has installed all around the neighborhood but he starts it's an amazing system with metal shields that come down and they settle in and what we see here first that is really the result of the whole theme for the rest of the movie is their um, 14 year old son Charlie is watching on security cameras a stranger that was being attacked and because he um, has not really grown up in this world yet, doesn't understand his empathy, he disables the security system and lets in this individual. And the rest of the movie is a result of those actions that we see from one young son having empathy for a stranger who, unlike him, did not have the class and privilege that he did to live out the purge. Right. So when we, when we talk about this first film, um, I would consider this like a classic horror film. Like we're in tight contained spaces. We're in this house the entire film and we're watching this family who felt safe at the beginning inevitably end up trapped in kind of this house of horrors because their neighbors definitely have a hit list and the Sandins are on it, right? Um, we, we get a sense that there's resentment that the Sandin family, particularly James Sandin, Ethan Hawke's character, has profited financially from the 
the security system, which kind of stands in for, here's a man who's taking the safety of his neighborhood, profiting off of it, and not seeing that there is kind of this like safety for the rich being sold, whereas everyone else is left out to dry. So there's resentment in the neighborhood, right? And then, like you mentioned, John, um, we have Charlie, who you know, when they shut down these houses, they shut them down. It's like for 12 hours, like you're shit out of luck. You're not getting out of the house. Like his daughter is not going to get to hang out with her boyfriend, even though he sneaks in. Um, but Charlie is untouched by, you know, to a certain extent, the heaviness of like racial tension and the war on the poor. So when he sees this man outside, a man of color, I may add, um, he's, he's moved by it and and he doesn't think like if i make myself un, like unsafe this is like a really bad idea in, in his head it's like no we have to save this man right mm-hmm. um which is you know it's it's great because from the get-go we get a sense of like deconstructing white folks's feeling of safety right and and this kind of touches a bit on like oh look like they let in this person of color they're extremely unsafe right um, but the people who attack them are not this man who attacks them John um, who attacks them and it's my favorite line in the whole film are a gang of highly overeducated young white folk that were chasing the guy in the community and want him back and they are actually the outside force that we see for the rest of the film that the Sandin family has to compete against um, led by a character that you know routinely checks in and says that you know just give us the person just give us the stranger and you know you will go on our merry way and we'll leave your family alone and at one point um james sandon does volunteer to hand him over right yeah he does volunteer to hand him over because it's the us versus them it's you know he can't afford to have the system they can he doesn't want to put his family in danger um but i think what he really doesn't understand is that the danger is already in the household um because of the type of you know what they're trying to do and teach their children which we see charlie really pushing against um because he doesn't want his family to even partake in the purge. Zoe doesn't either, but she's so busy with her boyfriend up in her bedroom. She's super busy. Um, shout out to Adelaide Kane, who I loved in Rain, which is like the shittiest period show that's ever been on the CW, but I loved it. Um, I want to like actually really hone in on um, kind of something you said, like the danger is not even the purgers. The danger is a culture that's dehumanized folks, right? Which mm-hmm. although in 2018, we're seeing that everywhere, right? Um, we have children in cages. We have kids being shot on playgrounds. Um, so to kind of say, like, was Charlie opening up the house to someone who needed help the danger? No. Are the purgers even the danger? I mean, yeah, they have, like, a ton of weapons, and they're there to kill, but they're symptoms of a much larger problem, right, which is the new founding fathers are based and founded in the idea that you can dehumanize and be without repercussion of that dehumanization of your fellow brothers and sisters, right? And especially because they are exempt from the purge. And we find that out uh, in the third film, but like government officials can't be purged because once you're at that certain level of privilege, obviously you can't change the system that the system changes you. And that is really where they're at because the new founding fathers are that type of government that doesn't allow 
you know, for them to overtell, you know, be over turned it's you know they've set up a system of dominance yeah and we see this a lot in our regular political system right like a good example for me is you've got legislators voting on policy about the health care bills right but they have like like health care through the government and they're exempt from whatever laws they're putting out when it comes to health care that's like really similar and then when you think about it who's exempt from the purge in this new america right you've got obviously government officials i think if i remember correctly in the films they state that anyone at an er emergency room is exempt as well but then the one that's underlying that like they're hinting at but it's not as like shout it out in your face, even though I feel like it slaps you in the face within 10 minutes, is the rich are exempt from the purge. Like, if you are wealthy, you don't have to purge, but also you don't have to be purged, right? So I think, like, being able to differentiate the, those two things is really important. There are folks who do not have a choice whether or not they are purged. Everyone has a choice as to whether or not to purge, right? And when we say to purge, it's that all citizens are encouraged to be lawless, right? Like to, if you want to kill someone, you want to burn shit, like whatever you're going to do, you have 12 hours to do it. And people still have the agency to say, I'm not purging. But there's a very specific group of people who have the option to say, I will not be purged. And aside from government officials and hospital folks, it's the rich. It's the people who are like, yes, James Standen, I will take your $40 million security system and then chill for the night, like Netflix and chill and wake up the next day with less poor people on the street. Like my neighbors are all dead and I'm doing fine, right? Yeah, there's less homeless, there's less, um, really what they're looking at is they're trying to weed out um, the people in society that these new founding fathers have deemed, you know, unworthy of life almost. And what we don't realize is because it's the first film is that when we meet the stranger, who I think we should totally give a name, his name is, the actor's name is Edwin Hodge, but in the film, his, he's Dwayne Bishop. And he becomes that type of activist that we really see fighting against, you know, the overall theme of the movie is the us versus them. It's what happens when you introduce empathy into a world that is so hell-bent on death and destruction that is legal for one day out of the year. Right. And I think this is a good segue into the second Purge film. Um, and like we said, we're just going through some of the major themes. So the second Purge film was The Purge Anarchy. Um, which is my favorite Purge film. Um, I've actually directed people occasionally to skip the first one, not because I don't love it, but because the first one is still within the construct of a traditional horror film. I think by the second film, they found their stride as to a certain extent, like transgressive horror, which I love. Um, so The Purge Anarchy came out in 2014. Um, and this one, so in this first one, we were self, like we were contained in this house, right? And we were looking at the plight of a very privileged family with very privileged neighbors. The second film actually starts off in an inner city, right? We've got this urban area where poverty is probably one of their biggest issues. And we get to see the other side of the purge, right? So the first one, we see how rich people deal with the purge, how do white folks deal with the purge. Um, in the second film, we get to delve into the lives of, of people of color, Latinos, the homeless, right? Like, what does this look like to them? And so one of the first things we get introduced to, right, is that these folks do not have security systems. They're like boarding the houses, boarding their like their board, 
what are they called? Oh my God, John, what is that word for stores in a city? Bodegas. They're covering their bodegas, bodegas right? With like wood. They're getting guns off the street, um, like negotiating with folks for one gun for their household to be safe. Um, and so we, we kind of get a look at like what the anxiety buildup would be leading up to the purge in communities that cannot afford to kind of like lock themselves away, right? And some of the things that stick out in this film is we have a devastating story within this story of a grandfather who sells himself to a rich family so they can purge in safety in exchange for them giving money to his family that they so desperately need for medications, right? So hello, Mitch McConnell, like that's the future at this point. Like, um, Not even hello, Mitch McConnell, like hello, family that was trying to buy this individual like Mitch McConnell like I'm sure like that was Mitch McConnell's family <laughs> in the it just it like it's a really stunning scene that is such a critique of like where where this institutionalized poverty is inevitably going to lead to right like we have like stories worldwide of of folks being preyed on for for organs for blood like and these are always kind of like these urban myths, right? But but the purge immediately nails down that like when you oppress folks both economically, politically, you put their safety at risk, you take away their basic human rights, including healthcare, the desperation that will come from that, the dehumanization is going to lead to awful, awful results for people who cannot get out of this, right? Um, so I would say that like here we follow obviously like the inner city struggle with the purge. We follow people who have trauma from the purge, right? So families who have lost people who are then full of rage and want revenge, which is normal. Like these discussions on trauma and what, what it looks like to bear the brunt of a violent society is extremely important, I think. Um, so this is a really kind of also, it's contained in a small area. We have a, like a white couple who accidentally gets stranded in the city and has to like live with what it feels like to not be safe like they're used to. Um, what did you think of the second Purge Anarchy? The second Purge film was a real eye-opener for me. I think it's set in Los Angeles or is it like an undisclosed LA, like, yeah. area? Yeah, and so definitely living in Los Angeles and seeing certain things. I'm like totally one of those types of horror watchers that like when you see a film, like when I saw Signs, which I know insert laughter here, <laughs> that film scared the living bejesus out of me. I did not look at Cornstalks the same way again. Um, I slept with I water course. next to my bed. Oh, no, you do not. Actually, you would. You I would. would. I mean, spoiler alert, water's the thing that kills the aliens. If you haven't seen signs by now, like, I don't really feel bad. And but, you're, like, you I couldn't even see it. Yeah, no, it's so scary. And I think one thing we haven't touched on is one of the things that makes The Purge special. And when I say special, I mean this from, like, a horror junkie. Special is that it it kind of... It was the second film that kind of hit mainstream in, in my lifetime. There were some that were before that used these nondescript facial masks, right? That also, not only are we dehumanizing those being purged, but the people who are purging are wearing these masks that you cannot figure out their identity. They're, they're far removed, right, from what they're doing. But it's also just like a serious, like, mind fuck of an image these these masks like every time i go to halloween horror nights and i come to a purge sector 
I would rather a person be looking at me than this mask before they chainsaw my head off, right? Um, oh my God, I can't even go to those things. I, I, first of all, I legitimately think that if an apocalypse is to happen, it's definitely the zombie apocalypse. And let's be real here. I live in Los Angeles, so I'm screwed. Oh yeah, no, you're, well, what if, I don't know. I think LA, you might be able to like get out. I think well, hopefully. I'm, I'm in Florida and I'm Colombian. I'm not making it out, man. Because <laughs> I have to go through some- <laughs> I will come get you. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I love Purge Anarchy. I feel like it was what showed us the heart of this series, which was we are deconstructing white supremacy institutionalized poverty, institutionalized racism. We are showing white folks, like I think when you have, so the couple in this film, the white couple that's accidentally left in downtown LA, their names are Shane and Liz. Like we also get this kind of like, what would it feel like to put these folks in a situation where they don't have control, they don't have power, right? And if we start to deconstruct their power, can we become more empathetic? Can we start to realize that like, everyone's pain is my pain, right? Um, I, I love Purge Anarchy. I think it, it does a lot to kind of call out even my own comfort, right? At feeling safe, like, um, even though I'm a woman, so I never feel safe. Hashtag me too, 2018. Um, John Hashtag Doom, me too, forever. Me too, forever. For, forever, and I want to point backwards, forwards, to the sides, Um and then make those to the sides, backwards, forward, intersectional, obviously. Um, John, right. walk us through the Purge election year, which is the third film, um, which I just want to be upfront. The Purge election year had the most bomb commercials. They started right at the height of like Donald Trump's campaigning. And I thought they were his campaign ads. Right, right. Well, actually, I did. I was super. Was I wrong? Concerned. No. Like, <laughs> I remember like watching TV and getting the Purge the first purge election commercial and being like, what the fuck is this? Like, I thought it was a real political ad and like, I felt severe anxiety and I was like, what is this? And like, I look at Brent and I'm like, what? And then we see it's like purge election. We were like, yes, purge people. Like way to call out a time and a place for everyone watching. So break down a little bit of the purge election year for us. So the purge election year is my favorite purge film. And I just am obsessed with it. And we, in the second Purge film, meet a character, and this is where Marcy was really talking about getting to the heart and soul of the films, of really understanding like the themes that they're pushing forward. So in the second film, we meet Frank Grillo, who is Leo Barnes in the film, and he's credited as Sergeant. But he is actually in the second film because he, I'm sorry, the third film, because he made it out of the second film. And now he he is um, like a securities expert and he is working um, for the senator, um, Charlie Roan, who is running um, a campaign um, for the U.S. presidency. And she is promising to end the annual purge um, because when she was younger, her family were asked, actually killed all but her by a masked purger. And she totally gets and is woke with the issues that Marcy and I have been talking about and how the purge actually really only benefits um, 
people that have the wealth to do it. So quick shout out to um, Elizabeth uh, Mitchell, who uh, plays Charlie Roan, who if we ever are able to get her on this podcast, I will probably die. It's like uh, Seal Award when she was in Westworld. I am obsessed I with her. I apologize for my deep hatred of her on Lost, which is actually a credit to her acting. It was just that she did a very good job and I was never... I feel like her writing could have been better, but I'd have to like deeply apologize for my online shit talking about my love-hate relationship with Ross. I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Mitchell, because in all her grace and beauty, will forgive you because she is amazing. Um, but to go back to it, so um, here you have a white woman who I think is very representative of specifically the film coming out in 2016 of this type of cultural and societal shift that they are promising. Now, we don't have the time to discuss like really what type of candidate was she supposed to represent um, having this film come out right before the 2016 election. Is she more of a? Or do you think she's a Hillary? I don't think she's a Hillary. Actually, I actually thought she was more of a Bernie type character. Just the ways in which um, I think the film was really going against like this establishment versus like the person that's going to come in and like almost destroy the system type of mo- like themes that they were going for. But like I said, we don't. We ain't got no time for that. Okay. Well, simultaneously being like a super safe establishment destroyer, right? Because she's still white. She's still pretty. She's, she's still pretty. She definitely <laughs> works her way. She's still pretty. Um, she still fits kind of like what would make people comfortable, even if she is like a super leftist candidate, which sucks. Yeah. And so the new founding fathers in all of their uh, grace and glory decide that in order to get rid of um, Charlie, um, tonight is the first night of the purge that elected officials are not exempt from being killed. Um, And they do this to basically try to find a way to kill Charlie when all crime is legal because they are threatened by what she represents. So, um, what happens is, is the new founding fathers get together and they hire Shocker, a neo-Nazi paramilitary force. What? what? Nazis are still a thing and we shouldn't be giving them air credit on the New York Times, Washington Post, because guess what? Hashtag Nazis don't have feelings and hashtag you should not give them any airtime. If I say one more think piece of like the bakery love of neo-Nazis in the Midwest, I'm like seriously going to buy it. Like, no, I'm done. I mean... Most of them are working in the White House, so it's really not that hard to find out, like, really what they're doing. In 2018, that Nazis are bad. Like, I mean, I feel like horror and dystopia has been warning us for years this was coming, but even then, I'm still shocked we're having this discussion. Totally. And I'm still just in in shock that the ways in which this third film really portrays them. And so, like we said, you know, the first, the second character... Um, that I was talking about um, from the second film, uh, uh, Leo Barnes, is basically um, Charlie's security detail the whole day. And so they go through the purge streets. Everyone's wearing those creepy masks as like the um, uh, Statue of Liberty, George Washington. An undercurrent theme that we probably won't be able to talk about is how the purge has been so successful for tourism that people from other countries, um, specifically um, Russia, as they point out are coming into america to purge because it's so much fun 
let's talk about it. Actually, this ties into something um, that I was thinking about this week. Uh, so I'm like, like you, I'm a perpetual Netflix freak, right? Um, to the point where I've run out of shit to watch. So anyone who wants to- What did up, you just watch on Netflix, Marcy? We have to, our viewers want to, I'm sorry, our listeners want to. So I was watching Dark Tourism, <laughs> like Dark Tourist. And um, the first episode is Narco Tourism. So like I said, I'm Colombian, right? Um, from Medellin, uh, hashtag not the narc capital of the world anymore, but we were for a really long time. And um, this episode covers like super- like baller rich white folks who like to go to Medellin to take narco tours, right? So like they will like get in taxis and do like Pablo Escobar's last run. And then they'll spend some time in the jail where he had hookers and coke. And like, it's like the weirdest thing, right? Because the second part of this episode deals with narco tourism um, crossing the border from Mexico to the US, right? And um, you don't see a single brown person doing a fake border crossing. Like, it's just, you're never going to see like a Mexican volunteer to do like a super traumatic fake border crossing. Um, so the idea that they're hitting on here that like when you've dehumanized people so much, when you stop seeing the harm of these things, right? Like tourism and like the opportunity to kind of create this cesspool of like privilege comes up. Right. So I'm not surprised that like in this, like, fantastical world of the new founding fathers, you know, which is not that fantastical. Um, I just refuse to call Trump my new founding father for now. Um, it, it makes sense. It makes sense that like really fucked up people from all over the place are going to be like, yeah, like I want to go for that 12 hour period. I'll pay $30,000. Like you've got, you've got Eric and Donald Jr. paying for tin can hunting in Africa, right? And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's like when you pay for them to drug a humongously beautiful animal so that you can shoot it in the wild when it's like super drugged up, right? Um, so this, this isn't a far bridge for me. It just like obviously makes me fume because I'm like, oh, of course this would happen, right? Like, of course. Yeah, totally. I mean, what I just got done watching on Netflix um, specifically was um, Love Letters to the Boys I've Loved or whatever. I can't remember what the total title is. It is a young adult novel. It is incredible, much on the air of what Crazy Rich Asians is doing for diversity in film. Um, it's shocking that we are still having this conversation but um this film on netflix is incredible go watch it the the lead is a young korean american woman and it is just incredible and you everyone needs to watch it so purge election year kind of has um this overarching narrative of like what the right establishment what what the folks with power will do to silence those who are challenging their power, challenging their systems of oppression, right? Totally. And I think that's why um, Charlie Sloan, Rowan is so dangerous to them because here they have this amazing system that's in place and she represents all that could totally change that quote unquote establishment for the better. And she's definitely got the support. And as you find out in any of you political junkies out there, um, one of the characters in the film says you have to win Florida, which was really scary because I feel like they put that in there um, because in 2016, Florida, you know, had, was, you know, one of the, all the marbles types of things. Are you asking that, me to apologize for Florida? Cause I feel real bad about it. 
I think we should always apologize for Florida. Um, I grew up going to Florida every summer. I love Florida, but let's be real. When it comes to politics time, like it has caused us so much headache and heartache that I can't even wrap my mind around it anymore. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. A lot of us feel really bad about it. <laughs> you should, it's all your fault. So do you think this third film was kind of like a call to action to resist movements, fictional and non-fictional, of authoritarianism and power grabs and dehumanization? I totally do. I think the ways in which this film really grapples with that morality question, especially at the end when um, you really see not only, so to cue back to the, to the end of the film, Charlie is kidnapped by the new founding fathers to be sacrificed in front of all of them to kind of like get rid of them all. They're all going to do like this ritualistic killing of her and a church. And it's really effed up that all these white men are going to kill this woman. It's triggering for a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, but when you think about after, you know, spoiler alert, she escapes and you see the ways in which they question about not killing the leader of the new founding fathers, because if you do, and if she were to do that, um, she's just like them and they need to hold them to accountability and justice. And how do you get back to a system of justice in a world that has been for so many years, you know, glorifying a nightly killing spree. And, you know, we see that at the end of the film that, you know, not only do people give their lives to save this character that Elizabeth Mitchell plays, because she represents something that they haven't seen in a long time, a real type of change that the world needs to see. And spoiler alert, um, she wins the election. Thank you, Florida. And, um, you know, she takes Leo Barnes and points him the new director of her Secret Service. And, you know, they um, announce that they're going to end the purge. But then as the credits roll, the news states that the new founding father supporters have staged violent uprisings across the country in response to the election results. So they're not going down without a fight. Um, and it's really interesting to see the ways in which, you know, this film plays off of these Nazi themes for how they really represent. Um, when you look at what the new founding fathers wear on a lot of their suits, it's very symbolic of like Nazi regalia with their eagle crosses. Like symbolism and ritualism um, that's highlighted in the film, which I don't think is by accident. Um, if you remember, like in the first film, I actually have some purple blue flowers on my desk, which I just realized might be a subconscious nod to the purge. But in the first film, we see that everyone who honors the purge, almost like an allegiance oath, right, puts out these blue flowers, blue stands for serenity, tranquility, outside of their home, which lets people know they're not resisting, they're just not purging. Um, and then in the second film, we get this ritualistic human sacrifice, right? And then the third film, we see like what almost feels like religious rituals of the political elites setting up to attack Charlie Roan, right? And I think it's important to recognize that this is a serious call out to where religion and politics have been meeting, right? And the 
collateral damage that that's creating, right? So like when white supremacy is preached from the pulpit, when it infiltrates ritual and systems of power within those who have power, then it creates this monster that is so much bigger than just religious identity or political identity, right? Because then they become kind of this like merged monster. So it's like, uh, it's like the folks that we hear all the time who are like, you know, the Bible defends the constitution and it's like, what, come again? Like, or, you like, know, wait, what? Um, it's called separation of church and state. We don't believe in that in 2018. <laughs> like, no. but I think it's important that they've kind of done, particularly in horror, you get these like visual snapshots, right? So, um, like we talked about the masks, right? In signs, it's uh, the, the water everywhere becomes this like symbol of like fear, but also like transgression. Um, the purge folks are very purposeful in kind of doing these like ritual adjacent images of stuff we know, right? So like for some of the film, they're in an empty church about to purge, right? They're at the family dinner table. They're inside the Oval Office. Like these are very important parts of people's identities as both Christians, Americans, Catholics, whatever it is. And they're trying to get us to connect that we have a power problem that has created systems of oppression and harm and hurt. Um, so I'm like always like a, like a nut job for like when I see them bridge both. And like when they give us that kind of like nod of like, we see you. American evangelical church aligning itself with white supremacy. Um, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Like we are gonna be really honest about the places where religion and politics overlap. Um, so I think purge the election year is the first one to be like, yeah, they're going hand in hand right now. Yeah, and it's my favorite. So obviously. It's your favorite. Um, so so then, Marcy, tell us about the first purge, so the fourth film in the franchise. I'm gonna be real honest. The first Purge, I think, had the strongest premise, and it failed to deliver. It's the first one that was not directed by um, James DeMonico, who, who worked on the first ones. Um, he, he still wrote it, but it wasn't directed by him, and I think it missed a lot of the visual cues that had kind of created the Purge world for me in the first three films. Um, but to give a really brief overview of it, the first Purge came out in 2018, and it to a certain extent breaks down something that we talk about a lot, which is the new founding fathers. It, it goes back in time to when they were first suggesting the purge, right? So we've got folks in Staten Island who are offered to be part of kind of like this trial run purge. Uh, so $5,000 is offered to folks to stay inside their home. And then there's also the ability to purge within those 12 hours. Think of it as like a huge experiment that they are proposing and these people are signing documents that they will do it. Um, and so we what's get- the Hulu, What's the disclaimer text on that commercial? Like you remember when you watch Hulu and like all you see is drug like commercials and they're like, warning, this drug may cause you to die. Like, can you imagine like what the disclaimer is for this one? Yeah, no, it's like, this is not going to be a good idea. Like, good luck with that. Um, but I think what they're saying is like, let's just take today, right? Today, September 2nd, 2018, you offer a low income community who has serious trauma from the last couple of years you slowly and steadily offer them money, security, reasons to participate in an open trial. I think like I can see it happening. Um, 
and I don't think you need a vast majority to be super supportive. Like, I wonder if for a lot of these folks that would originally sign up for this trial purge, it's like, well, I'm just going to stay inside and, t- and get the 5,000 bucks, not really calculating how much they've been dehumanized and to what extent you're going to see people trying to, to break in, to kill them, to do whatever, right? And also, I don't know about you, John, but like, I meet people all the time who seriously underestimate how dangerous the average Joe can be, right? Um, so, so in this film, we, we get um, these like two drug dealers who they're signed up. They have like these eye like cameras that are filming this purge. Like it's just an experiment gone wrong. But the most important thing that comes out of this initial purge experiment, right, is that we have these two characters Naya and Isaiah, who realize once the purge gets going, two things. One, the government is using social media to push narrative. So you have some of these first murders from the purge go live and go viral, and then that leads other people to watch it, which leads some people to be like, maybe we should do it, which leads people to be like, I'm afraid, like maybe I should probably pick up my machete. And um, and then the social media spin becomes the social media push, right, of the purge. And then one of the things that comes up is they notice that the the crimes that are being committed, primarily this first purge test run, are looting and vandalism. It's not murder. And so that's a big deal, right? Because then what, what the purge is hinting at is that the communal problems are poverty. <laughs> They're not like racism or violence or hatred. It's, it's poverty is what we're seeing kind of pop up. And the government's not going to have that result as like the purge test run. What did you figure out? Uh, well, aggression's not the problem. It's poverty. So they send in trained mercenaries to start killing people to create a revolting agitation. Uh, this reminds me a lot of the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, right? Which kind of talks- incredible book. It's such a good book, um, it, but it really kind of deconstructs the current prison system as this purposefully created oppressive like monster, right? And it's, it's just the evolution of slavery, the evolution of dehumanization. And when you get to this film and you see that the government is distraught when it realizes that people just don't want to be poor, man, like they're not out to kill everyone. Like they just don't want to be poor. They don't want to be oppressed that they send in mercenaries to agitate and create the narrative they want, that is like white supremacy 101. That is oppression 101, right? Um, I, I'm it's totally there. I mean, you hit the nail right on the metaphorical head when you look at how people feel anxiety because they are poor, they can't afford things. The things that people are willing to do for, you know, just being able to pay their healthcare bills really cues back to the second film. I mean, what did you think of the fact that Marissa Tomei, Marisa Tomei's character, um, all right, is it Marisa Tomei? Yeah, it is Marisa Tomei, who like plays the architect to the purge. I mean, so here you have a woman designing this whole system what is i mean you know what did you think about the gendered play within this last film women uphold patriarchy <laughs> this is what like, women are a part of the system too women love white supremacy <laughs> they love male supremacy 
Um, I think the best way that I can summarize my feelings for this is a tweet I saw this morning. Um, so to all of the listeners, we are recording this the day after John McCain, Senator John McCain's funeral. And there was a tweet this morning that said, um, what would people say at Ann Coulter's funeral? And the person said um, that she thought women were too stupid to have the right to vote and and story there because she is just as much as part of the system and i think that's the type of you know theme that we're trying to explore here in this film with how they're using gender to say hey this isn't just men versus women this is actually a whole system that's broken down by class privilege skin color you know creed you name it and that you know just you know, makes you just as vulnerable to being part of the system to either way also working against it. And the fact that we've got this like white privileged female architect, I think touches on like, I, John, you know this, like we both come also from feminist studies backgrounds. Uh, a lot of times we get women who will say something awful, right? And then they'll be like, and if you call them out on it and you're like, that's misogynistic or that's, you know, whatever it is, they'll be like, no, it's not. Like, I'm a woman, I can't be that. And it's like, Neesh. yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can. Um, and I, I mean, like, for me, Marissa Tomei has had kind of a year of playing, like, the privileged white asshole in dystopian worlds. She was also in, um, she was just in one episode of The Handmaid's Tale season two, but she also played a very privileged wife who doesn't seem to understand uh her place in, in the oppression that she is participating in, right? Um, and I, shout out to Marisa Tomei, who does live in West Hollywood and who we both do love. Um, she really is, especially in relation to what Marcy said in her role in The Handmaid's Tale, she's incredible. And I think she does offer a nuanced look at this and she plays it really delicately because of these themes that we're talking about. Right. Um, it's just, it's been a good year to to have TV ask us to do some internal soul searching. Like, um, I say this as a woman who is Latina, who is Colombian, who was Colombian American, right? Both my parents are Colombian, I was born here. I pass as white. Um, I, there are systems in which I am complicit that's, that I don't know sometimes, but there's also times for me to challenge my privilege um, of living in two spaces, right? And, and I think women, particularly white women, um, struggle with that, right? Because if you actually do a poll, the most oppressed subgroup in the world is women, right? But that does not give us a free pass because women come with all different um, burdens of oppression, but also of privilege. And we can so often be complicit to the systems that oppress around us. So no, I really, I really liked this final film kind of giving us this jump back into the the system, not the system, the symptoms of an uprising of this type of oppression, of this type of authoritarianism, of this type of dehumanization. And it doesn't put it squarely on some old white dudes doing a human sacrifice in a church, right? Um, very familiar and, and um, like, for some reason, like Dr. May Updale, who's Marissa Tomei's character, I feel like I've met people like her, right? Um, and I've asked people like her, what does it feel like to be complicit, right? So. 
Totally. And I think that when you look at this final film and what it really gets us going for, for what we really expect from the Purge TV series is, you know, really jumping back into a world of the minor characters that we really see, the day-to-day people that aren't these, you know, authority leading figures that we saw in the third film or perhaps the fourth film. So Marcy, you know, what do we really think we're going to get out of the Purge TV series? So now that we've officially done the shittiest breakdown of the first four films with some of those central... It wasn't shitty. Give yourself a little credit. Those are some really difficult films when you think about everything that's put into them. I mean, you have gender, you have sexuality, you have race, you have class, you have history, you have politics, you have policy, you have activism. You have, in a lot of sense, what we look at as the modern Black Lives Matter movement in the Purge movies because of the ways in which these communities of color are really leading the ways in which we need to change the new founding fathers in the third film. There's so much there. So I think you did a great job. Clearly, I have imposter syndrome. Uh, I'm an academic. It comes by nature. Um, What do we expect out of the Purge TV series? I think kind of like what you said is a much more micro narrative, right? Like what does a neighborhood look like affected by this? Um, What would it be like to follow much more closely for a longer extended period of time? Um, Different characters and how the anxiety buildup, trauma, rage. Um, what does that look like in different folks from different backgrounds with all of these um, different things that we could pile on top of them, right? Like, what does it look like to process this deconstruction of the world that they knew, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's like what I'm excited about is getting to know, and when I say no, I mean like to know characters living in this dystopian future of like, dehumanization. Um, I would argue some people would say we're living it now and they're not wrong. Um, But the reason dystopian lit, dystopian television, dystopian movies are so important is that it allows us to step out of our body and experience the trauma, anxiety, healing, rage, resistance, whatever it is that it brings, it allows us to experience it in a safer place so as to be able to process it and then apply it to your own life, right? Um, Apply it to the world around you. Um, So I'm hoping to be able to process some of my trauma from like the last couple of years watching everything that's happened in this country through a show that I think is gonna do really smart stuff. I'm really interested in looking at um, and exploring the ways in which the soul is like and what morality looks like in this TV series. I mean, it's setting it up to have, you know, certain characters that I think play certain roles. And I'm really looking forward to seeing if there is a soul in this universe um, and really what does that look like and how do we define that specifically in the, you know, with the lens of pop culture, you know, when all you have is horror and class around, you know, this class warfare around it. And I totally think the purge is so important in 2018 because as Marcy, as you just brilliantly said, we are in our own very type of purge. And I think it's a class purge from the ways in which the tax plan has totally caused people to lose hundreds of dollars out of their paychecks to the ways in which we're still fighting for the ways in which people can, you know, afford, um, basic health care um, and how they, you know, pay for, you know, procedures that they need. And if they can't, it's death. Um, you know, what really is the purge in 2018? Are we not, are we already there? Well, we're not having a glorified ritualistic 
night where all crime is legal. But I think what we could make the case for is that we live in almost, you know, a 24-7, 365 day a year type of purge that's on the minor, you know, um, minutia aspect. We have people not able to afford food. What do parents do? We have people not able to afford health care. What are they supposed to do when their children have the life or death situation? We're there right now. And I think that's why this, I'm, I'm so glad we chose this TV series, even though it took a lot of cajoling for me to be like, okay, the Purge TV, when I really wanted to do um, the leftovers, right? But that's a whole nother podcast. Well, okay. So a couple of things. Like, I think what you're saying is, is the big picture, right? Which is, I remember when the Hunger Games came out, which was like 10 years ago, right? And it feeling reality adjacent, but for most folks, it was still a little far removed, right? Um, fast forward 10 years later, none of this is far removed anymore. Um, we, like I said, we have children in cages. We have um, people of color just being like, gunned down for no reason whatsoever. We have children being shot up in schools. We have women who no longer have agency and autonomy over their bodies. We have children being raped by religious leaders and being silenced by those in power. Like we're living, we, I'm gonna keep going. We have students who have bettered themselves and their debt from a system that has preyed on them has left them unable to continue. We have healthcare, like, I'd say this is someone who has like chronic health issues, uh, chronic. I'm like living in like Narnia right now. Who has chronic health issues? I like, would, I'm okay with living in Narnia. Oh my God, I'm not. C.S. Lewis was a misogynistic dick. So I know, <laughs> but they have talking animals. I know, but I, like as someone who lives with um, like chronic illness, uh, I'm always like one bad day away from losing everything. Um, and I mean that, like, uh, as someone who has healthcare through her job and who has like a really supportive family, like, I know what it's like to get sick, sick, and then be like, I'm not even checking afford to be sick, sick right now. Like, so we are living in this kind of adjacent world now that doesn't feel so far from everything. And then your, your question of like wanting to see the soul of this community, like when I think of the soul, I think of like do we have redemptive qualities to walk our way out of this, right? Like, um, one of the things that has stuck out to me from both The Hunger Games, The Handmaid's Tale, um, like I said, I'm doing my dissertation on dystopian literature and feminist anxiety. Um, a lot of the books that have come out is the main question people are asking isn't why we got here, and here being whichever dystopian world we're talking about, it's can we get out? right? You look at June in The Handmaid's Tale, the question is not how did they get to Gilead, right? The question is, can a world react to Gilead and get back on track? I think foundationally, Purge TV has to answer that question to be relevant in 2018. It's not how do you get to the Purge? Like, motherfuckers, we're there. I know how we got here. Like, I know where we're going. The question is, can we walk back? Like, can we save our souls? Can we become better than even where we started, right? And like, that I think is why it's so important to cover a show like this. I totally agree. And so with that, Marcy, how can people that are listening find us on the interwebs? Of course. So like John said, we have a website called The Engaged Gaze, 
so engagegaze.com, um, where we kind of opened a platform for everyone to kind of kind of have an open space to dialogue about religion, politics, pop culture, whatever it be. Uh, and the podcast will be featured on Engage Gaze. So it's one of many um, different kind of features we have. John, can you tell us about the specific social media accounts for the pop culture theologians? I would love to. So you can find us and like us on Facebook um, if you um, search Pop Culture Theologians. And then on Twitter, you can actually find us at Pop Theologians um, right there. And we will be interacting with the actors in the Purge TV series coming up. We will also be, you know, posting witty banter on there because at the end of the day this podcast comes down to just really two queens marcy and i preaching this gospel of pop culture and we hope that you'll enjoy the ride so exciting so for everyone listening um the purge tv series is set to premiere september 4th so we are two days away john do you know what time it's premiering um, I don't because I clearly did not do my research, but um, I'm guessing it's in the evening <laughs> and it's on the USA network. Here we go. Okay. So everyone wanting to listen to the Purge TV series to listen, everyone wanting to tune in to the Purge TV series. It is on the USA network on September 4th. So two days from when we are recording today, um, at 10 PM. So that's like the adult hour, John, like that's when they put on like, oh. Yeah, that's when, like, boobs come out. It's the PG-13 <laughs> hour, or as close as they can get to the R hour. Right. And so, like John said, we will be on social media. You can find us at Engage Gaze, at Pop Culture Theologians. John, do you want to share your Twitter so that you can engage with us? Like, come talk to us. Give us a shout-out. Let us know. You know, we'll probably... Yeah, definitely. Right? We will be live-tweeting the first episode from our Twitter accounts, my um, handle is I am the men who can. Uh, a nod to Wonder Woman, actually, a great line in that film. John, what's your Twitter? Um, my Twitter, because I am just basic, is J Erickson85, and that's J E R I C K S O N85, because I thought of this years ago when Twitter first came out, and I have not changed it since because I'm a creature of habit. That is as basic as a pumpkin spice latte, but we'll take it. So join us on September 4th, 10 p.m. We will be live tweeting our reactions to the episode and our first episode on episode, our first podcast episode on episode one will come up later this week. We're so happy to have you listening. Thank you for being our experimental first audience for the pop culture theologians. Thank you, John. Thank you, Marcy. Happy purging, everyone.